Good morning. Let's stand together and worship. a seat. Isn't this a beautiful, sunshiny day to enjoy? And it's Mother's Day. And we want to say a special happy Mother's Day to those of you that have your mothers and your grandmothers and people that have been a mother to you. We're thankful for you. We're thankful for the love and the nurture and the care that you've given us. But we do want to stop for just a moment and pause and remember that this day has a lot of hurt for, for many people. Those of you that have struggled with infertility, those of you that have lost a child, those of you that have lost a mom, we ache with you. 
But we want you to know we love you and we thank you for having the courage to come and worship with us this morning. One of my favorite traditions we have at Fellowship is that we have child dedication on Mother's Day. And it is really beautiful that these families, these young families have said, yes, we want to dedicate our children with our church family. My teammate Hunter House and Susan Thomas, who is our early childhood team leader, are going to lead us in that dedication. Thank you. Thanks, Beth. That was very well said. I appreciate that. All right. Well, do y'all hear them? They're here. So <laughs> parents, kids, come on up. We, we, get, to, uh, we get to dedicate the, these kids to the Lord this morning. Like all things we do here at Fellowship Bentonville, uh, this is not just for them, not just for the kids or for the parents. This involves us as well. And so we're going to invite you to participate uh, in this morning. You guys can just line up here closer to the front. We'll see if you can actually get in this order right here. There we go. <laughs> Got to look and see where you're at. Yeah. You might need to turn your body pack on. Can we get... Seth, you want to grab a mic? We are so happy to do dedication today. We love doing it and seeing all these families up here. Um, my notes, glasses. Um, these parents are here today to commit before you, their church family, that they will raise their child in a Christ-centered home. And we, the church, want to commit to them and partner with them that we will love teaching their children to know and love God by sharing God's word with them on Sunday. And we also want to walk alongside them as they travel this parenting journey. But you, their community, also have a part in this journey. You will be supporting them, as many of you will be in the classrooms teaching these little ones God's stories. And it's very exciting because you are, besides their parents, one of the first to teach them these stories. So it's a big job. <laughs> and you will also be in their community groups and doing life alongside them. Yeah, I love it. This, uh, this discipleship journey of these kids is a process, right? It's going to take place over the next 16 to 18 years. But this morning is an important part of that process. Now, baptism will come when these kids actually profess faith to follow Jesus themselves. But this morning, we still want to have a kind of stake in the ground moment for them that you as parents can look back on, that we as a church can look at and know that this is the morning where we all committed to raise these kids to know and follow Jesus. And Susan and her team, everything that they do, that's what it's centered around, that these kids can know Jesus and follow him. And they are so intentional. And the reason I know is because it takes four leaders to handle one of my children on Sunday mornings. Sweet Bill. Sweet Billy. And... Um, Everything they do, though, is for these kids to know the Lord. There's no childcare, there's no babysitting, there's discipleship that takes place every Sunday morning, and you guys get to be a huge, huge part of that. There's a legacy that your team is leaving uh, here, Susan, and just the, the amount of parents and families that have been poured into the lives that are changed, the kids that are coming to know the Lord, uh, we just want to say thank you. So why don't you introduce uh, who we've got here this morning? Okay. We have Ethan down here with Danny and Haley. Can you wave? Wave. Hi. We have sweet. <laughs> we have sweet Hadley with Taylor and Chase. We have Emerson with Molly and Michael, and we have Levi and Gabriel 
with Ashton and Craig, and we have Zoe with Jordan and Tasha. <laughs> Your name got lost, left off. Um, Faye is, and her parents are Ben and Hannah. Thanks, Hi. Susan. Well, parents, raising kids is probably the hardest thing that you will do in life. Kind of ex expecting an audible amen from the parents out here. <laughs> Uh, but it's also one of the greatest callings that God has given you. I don't understand how God does it or why he does it, but he has actually given his creation to you to shepherd and to guide and to parent. And that is a huge calling. You're the ones who get to set the pace in this crazy, fast world. You get to slow your kids down a little bit. You get to teach them priorities. When they want to sign up for every activity there is, you get to actually push them to invest in biblical community. And you also are the ones who get to disciple them day in and day out teaching them to know and follow Jesus. So my biggest encouragement for you is the best thing you can give your kids is to follow Jesus yourself because they're watching every single day and they will pick up on so many things. And so this morning, we want you to treat this as an Ebenezer, as a memorial stone. So I encourage you to go home, mark this date in your calendars. Uh, maybe print a picture of someone, hopefully is getting pictures of you, then you can print and put it up in your home and actually remind people when they come over and they might ask, what is this from? You get to tell them, that's the day that our church and we committed to discipling our kids. When your kids ask, mom, dad, why, why is this picture frame? You get to tell them and remind them, we wanna follow Jesus together as a family. So we do need to hear that from y'all this morning, that that's what you're committing to. And so after I give you a couple of these things at the end, just want you to respond by saying we will. Is it your decision um, that you're gonna love these kids with Christ-like love, that you're gonna lead them with all humility, that you're going to apologize to them when you screw up, because you're gonna screw up a lot, that you're gonna teach them God's word every single week, and that you're gonna invest them into biblical community of their peers and shepherd them as the gift that God has given you. If so, say, we will. We know that this parenting journey is a lot better when we have people surrounding us. So we are going to ask some family and community to come up and pray with them. It's going to get tight. So y'all go ahead and up. scoot up. Uh, family members, community group, if you're in any of their community groups, come on up. And y'all can surround them in prayer. And uh, while they're doing that, I want to remind you, we don't know where God is going to take these kids. Uh, some of them may be in school together one day. Some of them may be in cell group together one day. Some of them may be in holy matrimony together one day. We do not know, but what we do know, all the dads are like, hey, stop. Uh -uh. <laughs> what we do know is while they're here and a part of our church, they get all of us. Our time, our investment, our prayer, our friendship, our community. And so rather than asking you to repeat something this morning, what I would normally ask is, will you commit to pray for them? Why don't we just do that together? So as the families and the communities are praying over these kids, what I'd love for you to do is huddle up with those you came with. If you're here by yourself, grab some neighbors next to you. We're actually gonna pray out loud for these kids. So choose a child. You can even look up that verse and pray that scripture over them. But this is your invitation into this journey as we as a church walk by faith in raising these kids. So let's pray together.
think so much better of you than that. Uh, Lord, we pray over these kids. As we just continue to pray, God, we, as a community, invite you to move in their lives. We want them to come to know you at a very young age. We want them to experience life in biblical community through friends, through parents, grandparents, um, those around them. God, would you just spark a generation that knows you and wants to follow you with everything that they have, not in cultural Christianity, not bogged down by the distractions of this world, but day in and day out commits to knowing and following you, God. We pray that you would do that amongst these kids. Help us um, as a community to come alongside them and to shepherd and to care for them. We give you praise for the joys of the sounds that we even hear right now, God, for the sound of life. We thank you, and we give all of this to you as an act of worship. Amen. Thank you guys so much. beautiful prayer. Uh, it's so good to be with, with family and friends um, to dedicate these little ones to the Lord. Thanks, Hunter and Susan and that whole team. Well, as we enter into, as we continue in our worship this morning, uh, I just wanted to give us a chance to pray together and just give thanks. The Psalms invite us to, as we enter his gates, as we enter into his presence together, to come with thanksgiving and praise. And so as our ushers are preparing to receive the offering this morning, uh, let's pray this prayer together just of simple thanks. Father, for warm sunshine after a week of rain, thank, thank you. you. For greening grass, budding trees, and blossoming flowers, thank, thank you. you. For family and friends, for mom, Thank thanks. For daily bread, thank you. For fresh mercy this morning, thank you. For comfort and sadness, thank you. For hope and loss, thank you. For joy that anchors us through it all, thank you. For steadfast love that never gives up. Thank you. Thank you. For grace upon grace. Thank you. When the sun comes up, it's a
working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you. I worship you. You are here. Stop working. Even when I don't. 
loving us. Thank you for sacrifice. Thank you for humility. Thank you for power. Thank you for your presence with us. God, even when we can't see and we don't feel you, God, would you give us faith to trust you and knowledge to lean on of your goodness as we reflect and we give thanks. God, would you make a way where there seems to be no way in front of us? I know there are people in this room this morning that need a a way made. So I pray that you would do that. You would make it clear that they could walk through in faith. Holy Spirit, thank you for your constant presence. God, would you make us more aware of who you are and that you are with us? God, would you open our hearts and our minds this morning as Mark brings the word? God, I pray that uh, it would bear much fruit in our lives. Thank you, thank you, thank you. In Jesus' name we pray it all. Good morning. Happy Mother's Day, Mom. And uh, my wife, Lisa, who's here, happy Mother's Day to her mom, Connie, who's here. Happy Mother's Day, Connie. Uh, You have helped Lisa become even kind of the mom that she is. So well, well done, and happy Mother's Day. By the way, I think I'm the other reason that she is the mom that she is. So I'll share that credit with you as we have you over and enjoy a meal together as well. Uh, That sounded more funny in my head than it did out loud. (laughs) So we'll hope that the live stream picks up right about now. Good morning. Hey, we've been in this series in the Gospel of John, and we're doing it differently than other times and other ways that is our custom. Typically, we just go paragraph through paragraph through a book of the Bible, picking up all of it that God might want to say to us. This Gospel of John series is a little differently in that we're making three very quick, short passes through the book. Pass number one, we're looking at the seven I am statements of Jesus, looking at who he is. Pass number two, we're looking at the seven miracles of Jesus to figure out what what he does. And then pass number three is the seven one-on-one encounters that the Gospel uh, of John uh, has for us. And I think even the approach to the book should tell us something about our approach to the spiritual life in general. And that is, where you start matters. And so we start where we should always start the spiritual life, with who Jesus is, because who he is is what changes us most. And so we looked at the seven I am statements of Jesus, with Hunter finishing out with the I am the vine, the true vine, last week. 
And who Jesus is always leads to what he does. And so the next seven in front of us that we will start this morning are the seven miracles that Jesus did. We're going to look at who Jesus is and what he does before we talk about how he changes our lives. This is where we start this morning. Jesus chooses a wedding to launch his first miracle. Now, it's May 8th, and that means this is wedding season. Maybe some of you have an engagement that's leading to a wedding this summer. For those of us who do the kind of work that I do, this is wedding season. And every bride and groom that I perform their their wedding for, I always say the same thing on the front end. I say, hey, if things don't go according to plan, don't sweat it. All that means is that you will be blessed with a great story for the rest of your marriage. So there's nothing more boring than a plan that works perfectly at a wedding. I said that to every couple, including Gabby Burkhardt and Josh Hefty, who got married eight months ago, and I was wrong. Last September, when the Burkhardt wedding got married, they got, well, they got a good story out of it. The wedding was an outdoor wedding, like all weddings are, it seems to be. And the forecast, when you looked at the radar, showed that a major storm was going to be blowing through in about 30, 35 minutes. So we decided to start the ceremony a few minutes early. And as the bridal procession was going down this very short outdoor aisle, a monsoon blew in. Now, you cannot over-exaggerate. I mean, people were holding down small children. Uh, A monsoon blew in. By the time the bridal party got to the front, and I said the opening prayer, all of us were soaked through to our skin. And so I said, listen, because hopefully we all know that a wedding is nothing more than the exchanging of vows, that the whole wedding is the vows. Would anybody be okay? Would everybody be okay if we just skipped right to the vows? And it's just pouring on us. They applauded. All the guests applauded. And so as... Josh and Gabby were reading each other these incredibly beautiful and deep and meaningful vows. This is the picture that Gabby's mom, Tara, captured and posted to my Facebook the next morning. I mean, it was sheets of rain coming down. Now, what stuns me about the photo is not the rain. How can Gabby look dry and so beautiful? Like her hair is still done. Josh was even looking dapper. I look like a walrus coming out of the water. The other shot that she sent me had me with my glasses down like this because I couldn't see because of the rain. Water is pouring off my nose and my bangs are down. I didn't have the courage to show you that picture. I love Gabby's maturity though. You know what she said? As soon as the ceremony was over, we just had the most perfect wedding. That is a wise woman. Well, we jump into this first miracle of Jesus changing the water to the wine at a wedding. Now, in Jesus' day, a wedding was not just an event that a family hosted. It was a festival. I don't care how big you think your daughter's wedding is getting. It doesn't compare to the first century, where a wedding would last about a week. And the family's job was to host that festival for the week. The celebration would begin with an evening feast where the father would lead his bride through town. The wedding party would be behind there, singing and clapping and shouting joyful praises over the couple. They they would walk through town and other people in the town would join in the procession or stand out on the curb. They didn't have curbs then. On the front of the house, 
and call out blessings to the young couple. They would arrive at the groom's house where a wedding canopy would already be set up, and the couple would come under the canopy and exchange their vows. As soon as they exchanged their vows, that canopy would become portable, and they would walk the couple back through town underneath the canopy, everybody celebrating and shouting blessings over them until they put it right back down at the groom's family home, and the groom's family was responsible for hosting the wedding party. And the festivities went on up to a week. And such pressure on that kind of hospitality that, well, there was even a Jewish custom that said that a groom's family could be sued for breach of hospitality if the preparations or the supplies ran out in the feast. That's wedding pressure. Now we pick up the story, John chapter 2, Verse 1, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. I want us to pause before we jump into the miracle and look at the setting. Jesus is not from Cana, which means he had to be an invited guest who made the trip over to the wedding. Freeze. Does it surprise you that Jesus is the kind of person people wanted at their celebration? Jesus was the kind of person who was invited to the party. When people celebrated the things that were most important to them, they wanted Jesus in the middle of it. Jesus is not the picture of joyless spirituality. There is nothing in this miracle story that we'll look at that shows Jesus just kind of back here on the back wall with a sour face, wondering when people are going to get serious rather than having so much fun. No. Can you picture Jesus dancing at this wedding? I don't know if he did. Scriptures never say that Jesus danced. If he did, did he have good moves? All I know is that Jesus was not the kind of person that people... Well, they just were attracted to his sour-faced religiosity. No, the only people who were not attracted to Jesus were the sour-faced religious leaders, the Pharisees. They accused Jesus of having too much of a good time. In fact, in the book of Matthew, they actually call him a drunkard and a glutton who spent too much time at the celebrations of sinners. Now, clearly, Jesus was not a drunken or a glutton, but he was. Someone who always brought the life, capital L, to every party. He was the one who is a God of irrepressible joy, who enters the daily activities of our world. In fact, the Trinity himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, living in one, as one person. They're spilling over with joy for one another, and their joy is pouring into each other constantly, even at this moment that it overflows and spills out upon creation, you and me. I own uh, very, very little religious art. I'm not down on religious art. I just don't happen to own any, except for one picture, that one. It hangs above my computer monitor in my home office. What shocks you about the picture? It can't be that Jesus has long hair. You've probably seen that before. It's that he's laughing. 
And he's not just smirking a little. He's busting a gut, laughing. And I know that some are sitting here going, wait a minute, Mark. The scriptures record that Jesus wept, but nowhere does it record that Jesus laughed. You're right, it doesn't. But I'm going to go on record saying that he laughed. Because it's not human beings who, who invented laughter and joy. It's not like we sat around our first early campfires and roared at a joke that just caught us as funny. And God sat in the heavens and went, wow, laughter. I wish I had invented that. No, we are made in his image, and so we have joy because he is the God of irrepressible joy. That picture is meaningful to me because of who gave it to me. It was an older saint, an older man in our body of a church that I served in another city. Godly man, but a very serious man. And we went through the Gospel of John together right before we moved 17 years ago to come to Northwest Arkansas. And on the night before we moved, he came and presented this picture to me. And he said, I, I met the God of joy going through the Gospel of John. He is the God of irrepressible joy. And he shows up in everyday life. Look at what he does next. Verse 3. Verse 3 says, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Verse 4, woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. So this is a wedding mishap that will not bless the bride and groom with a good story because the wine runs out. And the wine, well, it has obviously practical significance because it's the drink of the day and when the when the supplies run out, the party shuts down. But it also has spiritual significance. Psalm 104 tells us that wine is a symbol for joy and for blessing. And, and here, this couple runs out of wine at the wedding. Jesus' mom, somehow she knows about the problem. Yes, mothers seem to always know when there's a problem. And she goes and finds her son. But Jesus' answer seems a bit harsh and bothered to me. Is it to you? I, I just promise you, as we sit down to celebrate Mother's Day, you will not hear me refer to Lisa. Hey, woman, it's just so disrespectful. And yet, would it help you to see or know that this is actually a term of endearment in Jesus' day? We have to be careful sometimes of using our, our modern customs and language to reinterpret things that were an ancient language and custom. You know the only other time Jesus calls his mother woman was when he was dying and being executed on the cross and he knew that his mother needed care. So he looks at his mother and says, woman, behold your son. And the son she refers to is the apostle John. John, you will take care of this dear woman from now on. Jesus loves his mother, speaks to her tenderly, but he doesn't answer her with a Hebrew idiom of his day, a saying that they all would have known. Literally, it would have sounded like this, what to me, what to you? Basically, he's saying, 
their problem, why would this involve us? But Jesus does get involved, but he's going to do it on his own timetable. His answer here is, my hour has not yet come. This is the first time he's, the book of John records the phrase, my hour has not yet come. It comes up 12 other times, excuse me, 11 other times, 12 times in the Gospels. Talking about the fact that God has a very specific timetable, he's doing his work. Remember the song we just sang? You're always working, you're always working, you never stop working. And yet that work happens on a timetable. You see it come up in John chapter 7, when the religious leaders try to advance the timetable of Jesus' work on the cross. But it says at this, they, the religious leaders, try to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. You're not that strong to speed up God's work. And then on verse 13, chapter 13, John writes, it was just before the Passover festival and Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and go to the Father. So Jesus, he sets a timetable for his work and he's always working on the cross and at a wedding and uh, guess what? In your life and in my life as well. Always working on his timetable. Look at this work specifically in, in verse 3. Verse 3 continue, uh, goes back to saying, when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. That has profound symbolism for us as we walk our journeys in this world. Because the reality is the wine of our life runs out too. This word gone, it doesn't mean it dried up overnight. It means it ran short. It faded out. It slowly emptied. And sometimes that's how you feel as well. Like life's demands are so limitless. And you're just fading out, running on empty, wondering how to make it through another day. Let me tell you what doesn't work. What doesn't work is just slapping a smile on your face and getting through the wedding, getting through life's party one more time. No, when you are at that place of lack, let's at least steal a play from, from Mary's playbook. Where's the first thing she does is she acknowledges that it's empty and then she goes to Jesus with the emptiness. And so for maybe for you, you, you are running shy and short on the, the wine of joy that you crave for again. Maybe it's the bread of wisdom that you need for a heavy decision you must make. Maybe it's the meat of strength that you need to get through a trial. Life's just hard, and you wonder if you have enough for it. Don't just keep moving on your own. Bring it to Jesus. He will act, but he'll do so on his timetable, not ours. I think it's the love of God who chooses to let the wine run out for a little while. We're not told in the text how long the people are walking around with empty glasses, but he leaves it for a while. He knows he's going to solve it but he does it on his timetable. And I think the reason he leaves our cups a tad empty at times is so that we will appreciate his filling once again. That we'll be grateful and dependent upon him to fill us up because he's the source of abundance. So when Jesus provides his timetable, not ours, 
What he provides, well, we know it's going to be abundance. We're going to see this in the story. And how he provides, that's often quite shocking. Look at the story in verse 5. Verse 5 continues. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. This should be the mottos of all servants of God. I just want to do whatever he tells me to do. Mother's Day 2018 was a very special Mother's Day for Lisa and I. Really, for both of us. Because it was four years ago on Mother's Day that our daughter invited us to her church, right down the road, Catalyst Church, good close friendship church, partner church of ours, where my son-in-law serves as the worship pastor. My daughter had been asked to share her testimony on that Mother's Day. So the whole family came. And we listened to her as she told the testimony of God's power to redeem the most painful situation of her life. And in it, she said a line, a little short line that has stuck with me for four years. When talking about the difficult choice to forgive the unforgivable, she said, I was able to do it because, there it is, my Savior is worthy of my obedience. I've quoted that line to myself a hundred times since I heard my daughter say it four years ago. I love it when my kids begin to disciple me and not just us disciple them. It's powerful. It's the heart of a servant. See, servants are committed to obedience even before they hear their master's uh, words of what he wants them to do. But servants know that our master Jesus He's not a taskmaster. He's full of grace and joy. He gives life in abundance. When he asks us to do something, our posture is this, Lord, I'll do whatever it is you want, us, want me to do. Now would you just please show me what the it is? Because it must be good. It must be good. You know, we chafe against obedience. I think we chafe against obedience because we think that the thing God is asking us to do is too high and too hard. I'd say get your eyes off the thing he's asked you to do and move your eyes to the Savior who asked you to do it. Because obedience becomes attractive when we see how high and worthy he is. And he is good and full of life. How good? Let's continue the story in verse 6. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. This must have sounded absurd. I just need you. Now, remember, you're, just put yourselves in the sandals of those servants. They're hired to do a job. The job is going badly. The wine has run out. 
This invited guest who seems to have a magnetic kind of authority that they can't really put their words to tells them, see the washing jars, the ceremonial jars that they washed their hands and cleaned up with before? See those jars? Go and empty them with water. Now, first of all, what do they need most right now? Wine. What does Jesus ask them to get? That doesn't make sense. Now, to make this more challenging for the servants, think of what it's like to be in, in their shoes. There's no well in front of every home. There's a town well. This is to take your mind off of Little House on the Prairie where everybody had their own well right in front of their own little farmhouse. And remember that cultures were built around a town well. And so servants had to get up and walk to the well. How many times does it walk back and forth to get 180 gallons of water? I don't know either. A bunch. So they're back and forth, and they're talking to one another. And they're saying to themselves, this makes no sense. We need wine, but he's telling us to get water. Back and forth. And he's asking us to put the water into the washing pots. And now, not only that, he's asked us to fill them to the brim. That's 180 gallons of water. So I did the math on this. That's 4,000 cups of wine. That's a little overkill for a small town wedding. And worst of all of that is once the, our boss tastes that we've put water in the washing pots and then put those in the cups and gave them to the people, we look for work in the morning. Jesus asked them to do the illogical. Get used to it. Because that's what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. And so the more you keep trying to squeeze him into a predictable box, the more he'll move out of that in ways that are shocking. I know it's hard for us to believe that he still asks us to do illogical things, so let's just take the daily stuff of life. How about this? The way you do your time and money. Jesus is totally illogical. The way we handle money, he says, I want you to give. Yeah, but Jesus, you don't know the demands on our budget. I know, he says. So to help you with that, I want you to give generously. Oh, wait, you don't understand that we still have bills that we don't know how they're going to be paid this month. I know, I understand. So what I want you to do is give generously the first offering of that. Oh, that feels so illogical. I'm going to have to trust him to supply. How about time? Lord, we are stretched so thin, we couldn't answer another person's need for anything else. I know. I see your fatigue. I want you to serve someone. I can't serve them, Lord. We are tapped out. I know. I want you to believe that serving others is the path to the good life. Chase the good life and serve them sacrificially with love, and you're going to have to trust me for that. See, the Lord often lets us run out of our own resources before he fills us with his. He often gets us to a place where we just think, this is too hard for me. Lord, I, I can't share with that person. I don't have the words to say. I can't lead that group. I don't know how to lead a small group. I can't forgive that person. I don't know how to love them. And Jesus says, come to me. Watch me fill up your stone pot. Look at the rest of verse 8. They did so. The servants did so. 
And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from. Probably good for the servants that he didn't realize that. Though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Hey, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best till now. And do you know what that means? Who brings the better wine to your party? Yep, Jesus does. He is the better wine. He is the one we long for most. His solution is always better than our provision and our own solution. So running out of wine, I will go on record and tell you that was the best thing that could have happened in this wedding because if everything had gone according to plan and they had plenty of their own provisions, they would have missed glimpse of the glory of God, and can you imagine doing such a special occasion like a wedding and not seeing the glory of God? Well, the best thing that happened was that they ran out of wine. It's a picture, really, of what happens as God changes our life as well. In this little miracle we recounted, we just saw total transformation happen, total transformation. We saw that Jesus brought abundance when there was only complete emptiness before. They went from zero wine to 180 gallons of wine, 4,000 cups. We see that Jesus brought honor where there was only shame. In other words, even the master of the ceremony said the best wine, I mean the really good stuff from Sam's Club, you got that, not that cheap stuff for $2.99 at Aldi's, Right? You saved the past. Honor out of a place of shame. And he brought joy where there was only disappointment before. And that, men and women, is a picture of your salvation in Jesus Christ if you have trusted him. Your shame has become honor. Your disappointment, eternal joy. You won't just be happy, you will grow happier from all eternity. I don't know how that can be. I just know it's true. We will enjoy the infinitely good and joyful God. And we will see that our emptiness becomes abundance. Total transformation. Total transformation. And then we hit the last verse. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples put their faith in him. This is the first sign. It's just a foretaste of six more to come in the Gospel of John. But this first sign already tells us something about Jesus, about a fullness in him, about an honor that's in him, about a, a joy that can overcome disappointment. And in this sign, we see that it's, this miracle is just a sign to point to a deeper reality called the greater glory of God. God is showing off two things through his glory in this miracle. First of all, his abundant grace. And secondly, he's showing off his transforming power. You would think that everybody would see that sign and respond the same way. They would drop to their knees in faith and in worship. But not so. If we were to take our time to read through the rest of John chapter 2 this morning, we would see that, well, people are people, and we respond differently to the same truth. In fact, you see the 
Jesus' opponents, the religious elite, the Pharisees, they respond with skepticism. Their only demand from Jesus for the rest of the chapter is prove it, prove it, prove it. And then the crowd, well, they're quite curious. They want to be entertained more. Do it again, do it again, do it again. They love the fireworks that the sign sparks. But disciples, followers of Jesus, they let the sign point them to the Savior. And they believe and trust in him. Yes, signs, uh, well, they point to the Savior so that we might believe. This crisis, this little crisis of wedding, the wine running out of the wedding, it was just an opportunity to catch a glimpse of what the Savior can do and then to put your faith in the Savior. And when that happens, transformation happens. And that's Jesus' plan for us. It's total transformation. Listen, uh, that we are the stone washing pots. Notice that Jesus could have used any container to fill that water up and turn it into wine. He could have actually had it put in the wine pitchers. Wouldn't that have made a little more sense? But he used ceremonial washing pots that were used for religious observance. What does that tell us? We can keep living empty lives and embracing just being ceremonially trying to clean and cleanse ourselves. We can trust in the, the new wine of the Holy Spirit and his ability to fill us with his presence and his joy. John tells us why he recorded this miracle. He says right up front, at the very end of the Gospel of John, it says, Jesus performed many other signs. In other words, don't get it through your mind that the seven I wrote about are the only seven he did. No, many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you, dear reader, that you, Fellowship Bentonville would believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. We're a normal church, which means some are here. All of us have a pretty good smile on our face. We know how to get through the wedding with a smile on our face. But some of us are quite empty some of us are running on empty, and some are actually experiencing a season of fullness right now. But if you're at that place where you're empty or running on empty, you're at the right place. Emptiness can be a blessing if you will A, acknowledge it, and B, bring your need to Jesus. Emptiness is no problem when Jesus has been invited to your, prob to your party. It's only a problem if he still hasn't been invited. And so if you're in that place where you need his transforming grace, do what Jesus says to do. Later in John 7, he says, come if you're thirsty. Come and drink freely of the water I give. We come to the source of abundance and we do whatever he asks. And for some of us, maybe that means for you, you need to come to Jesus as Savior for the first time in your life. You have been ceremoniously religious you can't clean yourself up. And you've been trying. You tried to turn over a new leaf. You're trying to do better and be a new man or be a new woman. 
but you don't need wine that keeps running out of your own. You need what the Savior can supply, which is life-giving and full and abundant. It takes away your shame by giving you the honor of forgiven. It takes away your disappointment and giving you the joy of being his. It even takes away your sense of emptiness and replaces it with the abundance of himself. Come to Jesus by trusting his salvation. What he did on the cross is what cleanses you. What he did in the empty tomb is what gives you life. For some of us, maybe you've trusted Christ for the first time, or you already trusted him before. But there's a, a sense of bitterness or maybe vinegar inside of you. Maybe for you, you're trying to hold on to Jesus with one hand, but hold on to your pet sin with another. And it's not working. And Jesus says, come to me, but you'll have to repent, which means let go of that pet sin and turn to me and cling to me and let me fill you. For some of us, maybe there's a specific act of obedience that he's asking you to do. Step out of a comfort zone that's really scary. Trust him. Remember, our Savior is worthy of our obedience. And for some of us, maybe you need to return to fellowship with him, as Hunter talked about last week. Him being the life-giving vine, and we are the branch who receives from him and bears fruit. I don't know where you are. I just know that emptiness is only a good thing if Jesus has been invited to your party. So maybe you pray and ask him now. Holy Spirit, apply your miracle here to my life. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we do ask you, apply your work in Cana that day to our lives today. We want to believe like your disciples believed. We want to obey like those first servants obeyed. Because we need to experience the joy that that young married couple experienced, where their emptiness became full and their shame became honor and their disappointment became joy, and that's our appetite too. So come and work. Replace what was with what could be from you. And we do love you. It's in your name we pray. Amen. I searched the world But it couldn't fill me A man's empty praise And treasures that fade I never know Then you came along And put me back together and every desire is now satisfied here in love. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better than you. 
with us as we sing. I'm not afraid to show you my weakness, my failures and flaws. But you've seen them all. You still call me friend. He's the God of the mountain. He's the God And there's not a place your mercy and grace won't find me again. Yes, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing better than you. Oh, there's nothing. Nothing is better. in our Discover to join us next Sunday. It's not too late to, stay, uh, to sign up. There's also Bill and Sharon Brown in front of the baptistry that would love to pray with anybody that would love to have their words prayed over you. Will you receive this blessing? May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
may his face shine upon you and may that give you deep and abiding peace.